a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. This is where we gather twice a day, at least Monday through Friday, to uh, revel in wrong thing. And if you're new to the show, I appreciate you uh, trying it out. I appreciate you pressing play if you're listening to the podcast or if you're accessing us through our live streaming on the uh, Fed by Ravens Media Network or the Loving Liberty Radio Network or any of the other networks which are carrying us, or if you're catching the, the best of shows being aired on various radio stations across the country, thank you. Thank you so much for being part of our audience. Our program is brought to you by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, by Monticello College, by Pure Light, as well as HSL Ammo. And I've thoughtfully included a nice little uh, section of my show notes each day that I do the program at thebrianhydeshow.com. Look for today's show notes. That would be uh, March 4th, 2021. And you'll find a little link there to the sponsors. You can contact them, reach out to them, do business with them if you'd like, or you can just simply tell them thanks for sponsoring the show. If you're new to the program, I just want you to understand, I talk about, uh, I talk about issues that I believe have substance. Now, I understand that could be kind of a subjective call. Here's the difference, though. My goal is not to get you angry or to make you fearful or otherwise point you in the direction of somebody and basically say, sick them. I'm not about uh, trying to bring more anger to an already volatile situation. So I'm going to share some stuff with you today that, uh, you know, it, it may move you out of your comfort zone. That's not intended to, to be the equivalent of sitting here throwing red meat to you and encouraging you. That's right. That's right. Let the anger flow through you. Um, I want people to understand the world around us, to be able to think clearly and independently, which, by the way, doesn't mean agree with me. It just simply means to weigh things, come to your own conclusions, and then chart your own path forward. But unfortunately, it's hard to know where to find good information. It's hard to, it's hard to know when you're being gaslit or when you're being just uh, flat-out manipulated or lied to. And I, I, I guess that's just the, a sign of the times that we live in. I'm pointing you know, a pretty big finger at mainstream media, mass media, which apparently has, has uh, thrown in with uh, some of the powers that be and, and, and considers itself you know, <clears throat> part of the in crowd. All I know is there are some things in this life that, that really matter. Personal freedom is one of them. Freedom of conscience is a part of that. It's very essential. I also uh, think that things like property, uh, pi- private property rights matter. I believe the free market has the answers that we're looking for. And that government, in order to be an actual blessing to the people that it's supposed to be serving and protecting, has to be very limited. And only serve in a protective role rather than a preventive role or a micromanaging role that covers every aspect of our lives. So these are the premises from which I, off, I operate. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to agree with me. I don't think you're dumb and I don't think you're evil if for some reason you see things differently. All I'm trying to offer is a little bit different perspective, a slightly different point of view that can help add to your own understanding of the world. What you do with it, that's totally up to you. 
So the big news this week, and this is actually pretty exciting news, the lockdowns are starting to end in some states. Most notably, uh, you know, Texas, Texas Governor Greg Abbott came out the other day saying, look, the lockdowns are lifted. That means no more mask mandates. Texas is open. And that's pretty big because Texas is a big state. And Texas had some pretty serious lockdown issues for, for quite a while. But I believe since September of last year, they have eased a lot of those restrictions. Florida, maybe it was Florida that, that let out. At any rate, it's wonderful to see some of these states going against the trend, which is, no, 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 we have to stay fearful and we have to stay locked down forever. Anders Koskinen has an excellent piece on intellectualtakeout.org. And before I share that with you, I'm just going to recommend, if you haven't made intellectualtakeout.org part of your daily quest for information on the world around us, they have some marvelous writers. They cover a very wide variety of topics, but they also cover it from a very principled point of view. And, and that means it's, it's not red state versus blue state mentality. It's more about uh, what is the correct principle here? What's a, what's a more productive way to approach this? which means it's not trying to shepherd you into the left or into the right as far as, you know, how should you see things. Anders Koskinen's article is titled Burying the Lead, L-E-D-E, on Reopenings. And this is where where some of my heartburn about uh, the MSM, the mainstream media, comes from. It's, it's because of things that, like, like Anders Koskinen is documenting here. He says, CNN's recent criticism of the reopening of Texas and Mississippi has once again proven its journalists merely engage in partisan coverage. This time it's accompanied by the added demerit of not understanding the nuances of federalism in America's governance. With Governors Greg Abbott and Tate Reeves both deciding it's high time to reopen their states and get back in business, a CNN headline reports that, quote, Biden urges patience on COVID as Republican governors go rogue on reopenings. Yeah, there's no editorializing in that headline. The same article, he says, states that governors have defied federal government warnings not to relax restrictions. And Anders Koskinen says, newsflash to CNN and President Joe Biden, you don't have the authority to shut down whole states for indefinite periods of time. But let's give CNN some credit, for the article in question is an excellent example of organizing information in such a way as to produce an effective smear job. If only CNN was honest about it instead of pretending to engage in journalism. In the fourth paragraph, CNN claims that the two southern states and the Republican governors are going it alone as new infections plateau at high levels. It's not until the 15th paragraph that it admits Republicans are not the only governors easing restrictions as new cases of COVID-19 and deaths from the virus have fallen. So the attack on Abbott and Reeves is doubly apparent in that last sentence alone. Koskinen says to begin with, the fact that Democratic mayors or governors are also reopening is buried. It may be, as CNN says, that these reopenings are not nearly as dramatic as those of Texas and Mississippi, but how is a reader supposed to judge that? No Democratic-controlled locality that is partially reopening is mentioned in the article, nor are any of the other partial reopening measures defined. We're simply supposed to take CNN's word that Abbott and Reeves are acting irresponsibly, while Democrats supposedly engage in more practical steps. Meanwhile, this piece condemning reopening as a mismanagement of the pandemic omits any mention of how New York Governor Andrew Cuomo 
may face impeachment proceedings for shuttering elderly patients into nursing homes and hiding the death toll of his policy. By the way, that's a legit story. Don't hear a lot about it in the press. I mean, it's, it's very grudgingly reported, if at all. And Anders Koskinen says, nor does it mention that he's currently facing a federal inquiry into that deadly nursing home policy. California Governor Gavin Newsom's in similar hot water as a recall petition gains steam on the back of his repeated violations of his own COVID-19 emergency orders. Second is the note regarding COVID-19 caseloads and deaths. Now, the dramatic fall in new cases and deaths is likely the data informing Abbott's and Reeves' decisions to reopen, but that information is buried about halfway down the article. And just so we're clear, Texas and Mississippi's COVID rates haven't just fallen. They've cratered. On January 16th, Texas had 18,332 new COVID cases for a seven-day rolling average of 23,006 new cases daily. That's according to data from the New York Times. By March 2nd, those numbers were 7,240 and 7,259, respectively. Mississippi on January 12th had 1,648 new cases and a rolling average of 2,359 new cases daily. As of March 2nd, that had fallen to just 301 new cases and a rolling average of 582. So following these twin absurdities... CNN also asserted that states and cities opening under Democrats or reopening under Democrats are not acting as though the virus has simply gone away. Now, this is laughable, as the video atop the same CNN article is of a Greg Abbott press conference in which the governor states, quote, To be clear, COVID has not, like, suddenly disappeared. COVID still exists in Texas, in the United States, and across the globe. But it's clear from the recoveries, from the vaccinations, from the reduced hospitalizations, and from the safe practices that Texans are using, that state mandates are no longer needed. So today, he says, I am issuing a new executive order that rescinds most of the earlier executive orders. Now, these changes, remember this, despite these changes, removing state mandates does not end personal responsibility or the importance of caring for your family members and caring for your friends and caring for others in your community. End quote. Yeah, you know, I mean, I understand. For some people, it sounds like, you know, well, this is tinfoil hat time if you're accusing the media of trying to mislead people, especially on important things. And yet, here we are. We'll come back and we'll finish up this Anders Koskinen article in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad that uh, you would take the time to check us out today, unless you're a longtime listener, in which case I'm glad that you chose to stick around. I'm sharing with you an article from Anders Koskinen from intellectualtakeout.org, burying the lead on reopenings. And this is this does not look good for CNN. It's it's pretty scary when CNN asserts, well, these cities and states like Texas and, and Mississippi, you know, when they when they reopen, they have uh, acted as though the virus has simply gone away. So we just shared with you in the last segment uh, a quote from Texas Governor Greg Abbott from his press conference in which he very clearly says, look, COVID hasn't disappeared. The need for personal responsibility hasn't gone away. 
And the point here is this wasn't just some spur-of-the-moment reopening. The decision on the part of Governor Abbott and others is a data-driven decision, fully acknowledging the continued existence of the COVID-19 pandemic and encouraging personal responsibility among individual citizens. COVID rates are plummeting. Vaccines are rolling out. The reopening of Texas doesn't officially take place for another week. After more than a year of fear and uncertainty, this reopening is hardly an instance of rushing headlong into the unknown. In fact, he says, rather, the CNN article is an instance of journalistic malpractice. Journalism schools teach students the most important information should go at the top of the article because most readers don't read all the way to the end. CNN decided the most important thing to do in this article was lambast Governors Abbott and Reeves for reopening. As such, anything in these governors' defense or critical of their Democratic counterparts should be buried further down the text or withheld entirely. This is why we have to be so careful. And I'm not telling you that you can't get truth from CNN. You, you can, but you've got to be the truth detector. I know that's a responsibility a lot of people, for, for whatever reason, they don't trust themselves with. Well, how am I supposed to know? I'm no expert. I, I, I don't have a degree in uh, you know epidemiology. You don't need one. All you have to recognize is that you are the person who ultimately has responsibility for yourself. You are the person who is best authorized to make decisions regarding your well-being. You don't have to wait for someone in authority to give you permission. Okay, you may feel this way. You may do this. You may take two steps forward and you may raise your right hand. No, you don't have to do that. But a lot of people still cling to that. And there's still a lot of fear. I, last night, uh, I, I had the opportunity to uh, work a part-time job that I work in, in retail. And unfortunately, still, masks are required, at least for employees. But uh, when people come into the store, I'm starting to notice, just within the last couple of days, more people are foregoing the masks. Now, you might wonder, does that bother you? Does that, does that concern you? Not in the least. I'm happy to see it. I'm happy to see faces. Happy to see people's smiles. But I did have a guy come up to me yesterday at the cash register. And, and, and you know, people had, there was probably three or four people in line. I would guess about half of them not wearing masks. And this guy came up and, and very sincerely said, I just can't believe how many people have stopped wearing masks. We're not out of the woods yet. This thing is still going on. I have two friends who've died from COVID. Look, I think his fear is real. The only place where I would probably disagree with him, in fact, where I definitely disagree with him, is just because you fear it doesn't give you any kind of authority, moral or legal, to force other people to do your bidding. So if the, if the risk is that high, if the danger is that high, maybe you need to rethink you know, how much you're putting yourself at risk by going out in public. At least he had his mask on, so that was good. Hopefully that's protecting him. But it's sad to see how deeply that fear has seeped into, you know, the, the very bones of the population. And, and I'm not trying to denigrate this guy. I, I really think he sincerely was scared. He, you know, personally knows two people who have died from COVID. I, you know, just, I saw a friend pass away here the other day, very unexpectedly from COVID, a young guy. Maybe in his 40s. Posted a you know a notification on Facebook about a week ago. Hey, darn it, got to go to the hospital. Stupid COVID, you know. 
Um, but he was in good spirits about it. Two days later, gone. So yeah, it's it 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 happens. Trying to keep perspective on it is is hard enough. But when you have, you know, ostensibly journalistic outlets, you know, that are supposed to be giving you the facts so that you can make up your own mind, but when instead they're they're serving you some kind of a um, you know, ideological baton that they're beating you over the head with, and you should be fearful, you should be questioning this, you know, and distorting and manipulating the information to try to lead you to some preordained conclusion. That's not good. In fact, it's it's kind of insulting when you think about it. Which brings us to the topic of free speech. Let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, these aren't exactly golden days for free speech in America. And it's it's you know not that uh, government has become so censorious that you know they're they're just totally putting a a gag on everybody. No, it's uh, it's compatriots. It's partners, you know, like big tech that have climbed in bed with government that are actually doing the bidding of certain politicians who find certain viewpoints, shall we say, inconvenient. But it raises a question. Why do people in power try to silence those with whom they disagree? And Judge Andrew Napolitano, I think, actually has a really great take on this. This is a piece published earlier today on LewRockwell.com. He starts with a quote from G.K. Chesterton that simply says, In short, we do not need good laws to restrain bad men. We need good men to restrain bad laws. And then he asks, Why do people in power try to silence speech with which they disagree? Last week produced news about the suppression of speech on university campuses. There, the suppression usually occurs through the power of intimidation before the speech is given, right? This is, this is the little activists out there. We're going to riot. We'll tear this place apart. Why? Because that person's speech is dangerous. Okay, so, you know, according to the threat, well, we better not have Ben Shapiro come speak because, well, people could get crazy. It's not that Ben is saying or doing anything. It's that, you know, little, uh, little Marxists are having a tough time uh, trying to decide how they, could, how they could react. They can't counter what he's saying. Common sense and logic wouldn't work. I know. Let's burn the place down. Judge Napolitano says, Yet most public lectures on college campuses are public accommodations, meaning the landowner, the university, cannot bar the entry of audience members because of their political views, nor can it silence the speakers because of theirs. He says, Ordinarily, the owner of private property can impose whatever regulations he wishes upon those who voluntarily come upon his land. But in our era of ubiquitous government, state legislatures have enacted laws that require that if you invite the public, you must take whoever shows up. And if you accept money from the state or the feds, and there are only a handful of colleges and universities that don't, you must abide the same First Amendment standards as the government. So in the latter case, since the government cannot discriminate on the basis of ideas, then colleges or universities that accept funds from the government likewise cannot. See, the theory here is that the government's funds, dollars taken from taxpayers or money the government has borrowed to be repaid by future taxpayers, ought not be used indirectly in ways the Constitution bars the government from using directly. But the First Amendment is rarely enforced on college campuses today because colleges have largely become places of left-wing orthodoxy, where it's acceptable to cajole or intimidate into silence speakers who are at odds with that orthodoxy. 
Now, the usual excuse is the speaker will outrage the audience and that would threaten public safety. But as Judge Napolitano points out, under the First Amendment, where the audience is voluntary, free speech trumps public safety. Oh, this clash happens when people come to public lectures, not because they like the lecturer's ideas, but because they hate them. All right, we got to take a break. We're going to come back to this in a few moments. How would you like to be one of those speakers? <laughs> That's got to be an interesting sensation. Okay, we had to put in $600,000 worth of security to guarantee your safety, or at least try to. Just put on the bulletproof vest and we'll walk you to the podium and... Uh, we can get the program underway. Yeah, that's not that's not a good sign for free speech. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to take a quick moment here to uh, send some love in the direction of Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. If you have commercial insurance, you probably know it can get complicated, right? Figuring out exactly what coverage you need, what don't you need. I know you wear a lot of hats as a business owner, but if you need some help in this direction, I want you to reach out to my friends at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Very, very qualified. This is what they do. This is all they do. They help people make those decisions and understand where they are covered, where they don't need that coverage. Uh, they, they help you make the decisions that uh, make the rest of your many jobs that much easier. You can find contact information in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Again, that's Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. So I'm sharing this article on uh, silencing free speech. And maybe you're not a person who's particularly outspoken so maybe you feel like this isn't going to affect you. But the truth of the matter is, if, if, if you're being, if, if someone else is being silenced, it does have some spillover effect. Maybe, maybe it keeps you silent at a time where you should be speaking up just because you fear that something similar could happen to you. Judge Andrew Napolitano has uh, some, some great information here. In fact, he has kind of a historical example here, a famous Chicago case that put to rest the concept of freedom of speech versus public safety. And the issue was what's called the heckler's veto, which takes place when audience members are so intentionally disruptive that they effectively prevent the speaker from speaking. I think you've seen, if you've watched any of uh, some of the different speaking engagements from just a few years ago with Jordan Peterson, uh, Dr. Peterson has had a number of, um, you know, just infant-like people show up and just freak out and screech and throw tantrums on the floor to try to prevent him from from saying what he's going to say. And he's not a particularly controversial person. Unless you consider, you know, urging people to take responsibility for their lives and to uh, to stand up and, and be the kind of responsible, decent person that they ought to be, controversial. I don't know, maybe we live in, in such an inverted uh, form of reality. That is controversial stuff. But going back to uh, this Chicago case, here's what happened. On February 7th, 1946... Friar Arthur Terminiello, a Roman Catholic priest who was an outspoken opponent of the Truman administration, gave an incendiary speech in a hall in Chicago, which the sponsors of the speech had rented for that purpose. The sponsors had obtained the required permits from the Chicago police. The hall was on private property, and the speech delighted Terminiello's uh, supporters and antagonized his opponents. 
Now, the opponents out the opponents numbered about 1,600 people. His supporters were only about 800. And when it became apparent that violence might break out, the police ordered Terminello to stop speaking and to leave the venue. And when he disregarded their instructions, they arrested him and charged him with breach of the peace. Now, interestingly enough, the police did not arrest any of the audience members who broke chairs, smashed windows, and stormed the stage. Only the priest who gave the speech was arrested. Terminiello was convicted in a trial court. His conviction was upheld by state appellate courts. He appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which reversed his conviction. And in doing so, the court moved First Amendment jurisprudence significantly closer to where it is today, which is a near absolute protection for public political speech. Judge Napolitano explains, the court held that the government cannot silence a speaker because it fears his words or the audience. It also held that it is the duty of the government to respect and protect the freedom of speech, not to nullify or avoid it. So the decision was five to four. Justice Robert Jackson wrote a misguided dissent with a memorable one-liner. He argued that freedom of speech does not tolerate violence and permits the government to silence a speaker who may be prone to inciting violence before he speaks. Jackson lamented that in the post-World War II era, liberty and governmental order are often adversaries. He warned that if the courts regularly side with liberty, they will convert the Constitution and the Bill of Rights into a, quote, suicide pact. But the First Amendment and the natural right to say what you think compel the court to side with liberty, no matter how odious is the speech. Now, Jackson, who had just returned to the court from a leave of absence as America's chief prosecutor at Nuremberg, was naive in his lament about liberty and governmental order being 20th century adversaries. They always have been. They always will be adversaries. The essence of humanity is personal liberty, says Judge Napolitano, and the essence of government is the negation of liberty. Jackson rejected the very values underlying the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, namely that freedom is the default position because it's integral to our nature, and the Supreme Court rejected Jackson's arguments. Now, prior to this case, nearly all the Supreme Court's 20th century First Amendment rulings sided with the government. The Terminiello case is a landmark because since it and from it, the Supreme Court has consistently sided with First Amendment freedoms. It arguably gave birth to the famous 1969 Brandenburg case, where the court unanimously held that all innocuous speech is absolutely protected, and all speech is innocuous when there is time for more speech to challenge it. Judge Napolitano asks, which is the greater threat to personal liberty? A speaker who harangues a crowd that came to be harangued, or a government that fears free speech and issues edicts about what to say and when to say it? Interesting. He asks, will colleges and universities take note of this? Eh, don't hold your breath. By the way, when it comes to free speech, there is something to be said about the wisdom of knowing when to keep quiet. Got a great article here that I'll link with today's show notes. This is from Ken McManigal from everythingvoluntary.com. And Ken McManigal says, these days it feels like it's hard for most people to, to have pleasant social interactions with others who believe differently. And he says, I think a large part of that's due to people feeling it's okay to make everything political and to air their every belief. You know they believe differently because they feel the need to rub it in your face. He says, just imagine how it would go if everyone you interacted with on a daily basis felt the need to tell you what kind of crime they commit regularly. 
You meet someone, and one of the first things they tell you is how much they enjoy burglarizing houses, or that their hobby is shoplifting or rape. And then they expect you to just go ahead with whatever you are going to be doing with them. Yeah, he says, sure, you'd pare down the number of people you willingly interact with that way, right? Getting rid of some of the dead wood in the process. But he asks, wouldn't it look a lot like what we're seeing right now? He says, personally, unless someone admits to being a murderer or politically inclined person, I like how he kind of conflates the two of them, I assume they're okay. Most of the time, if I need to interact with them anyway, I'd rather not know the worst things about them unless I'm going to be living with them or working with them. You are a kitten stomper? Well, as long as you don't brag about it, I won't know. You support politician X or Z? Keep this horror to yourself, and I won't feel the need to ridicule you or run away from our casual interaction. Now, Kent McManagle says, look, some may claim there's no comparison here, but he says they'd be lying. If you advocate using any application of the political means against others, any difference between you and any other monster is only a matter of degree, if that. So it would be best not to go around yapping about it unless you want people to treat you differently based on what you admit to. He says, this is my problem when most celebrities, including science celebrities, start injecting politics into their public statements. And it's also the same with anyone I know casually. Ken McManigle says, I, I don't want to know how horrible or stupid you are. Why would you want me to know? And once I know, do you really expect me to have no reaction to this revelation? Bottom line, dragging your politics into the open cripples society. It's antisocial and shameful. Now, that's a pretty hard stance, I understand. He's, you know, he's drawing a pretty harsh line here. But I want you to think about how many conversations you have had that uh, started out, you know, pretty tame and maybe even productive, but when it delves into politics, suddenly people uh, become a caricature of who they actually are. Maybe it's not you, maybe it's other people who are doing it, but I think we're all kind of prone to this from time to time. This is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm becoming and actually have become a political agnostic in the sense that I, I don't like what politics does to, to virtually any subject that it brushes up against. It seems like it, it generally is best at making us fight against each other because there's this perception, if I don't beat you, then you're going to win, and that's just intolerable. Everything's a power struggle under that political mindset. Now, I understand you can't get away from it entirely. But I also understand that there can come a point of uh, diminishing returns. And Lord knows I have run headlong into this many times in my life where, you know, something comes up and I oh, there's a point, there's a chance to make a point about something political. Maybe it's the appropriate place to do it. I mean, it, it, maybe it's, you know, some kind of a town hall meeting or maybe it's a, a, a teaching environment. I'm not saying you should never speak up. But I am going to suggest that sometimes the best option is to know when to keep quiet. And rather than, uh, than simply offering your wares for everybody, I think the, the analogy I heard was spilling your candy in the movie uh, theater lobby. Instead of uh, just, you know, freely putting it out there, hey, everybody, look at this. Wee! You know, like my MAGA hat. That's just one example. But it's best to let people who have those kinds of questions or those kind of conversations develop when someone asks you, hey, what do you think about this? And then offer them something of substance. You do see the difference, right? They come to you voluntarily. It's fair game. Otherwise, let's not force it on people. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. I am so grateful for all of the different resources that I have available to me on a day-to-day basis. And uh, look, I, I claim no particular superpower. I am not a smart guy. My common sense is fairly limited. I'm not that good. Well, I'm not good looking at all. That's why you're hearing me rather than seeing me. But, uh, but I do have this intense love of liberty. And, and I, I have a, a somewhat of a gift of being able to, to speak about sometimes difficult subjects without, uh, without getting too, uh, too angry or too uh, you know, far in the weeds about it. But I've got some big questions here about a current thing that's taking place right under our noses, and that is an immense amount of, of spending on the part of the American government. And, you know, it's, it's not that... Uh, I, I'm not looking for a reason to hate on anybody, but I've got some very serious questions, and I'm grateful for all the different resources that are available to help me try to make sense out of this. Uh, one of the best resources is the Words and Numbers podcast. This is uh, Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan, uh, both of them uh, create this podcast and, and uh, distribute it in association with the Foundation for Economic Education. And these are good guys. These are folks who have taken the time. Uh, Dr. Anthony Davies is uh, a professor of economics at Duquesne University. James Harrigan's managing director of the Philosophy of Freedom uh, for the Center for Philosophy of Freedom at the University of Arizona. Um, he's an economist. I mean, it's... These, these are guys who know what they're talking about. So when they say something, I have a tendency to sit up and say, okay, I, I want to know more. And they're talking about uh, the $1.9 trillion relief package that is uh, currently making its way through Congress. Now, I'm not trying to raise your blood pressure when I point this out, but do you realize that uh, some of the earlier stimulus packages that were passed under President Trump, I believe there's still about a trillion dollars worth of borrowed money that the federal government is sitting on at this time. And, and I'm going to go one step further. Some people who were paying attention noted that uh, out of the uh, $2 trillion, roughly, that was spent earlier, only the tiniest little portion of it, just, uh, just uh, you know, I, I don't even think it was, uh, what was it, maybe maybe $100 billion? I know These are huge numbers, but I'm talking like, as ah, pocket change, but the tiniest bit actually made it to the American people in the form of stimulus checks. I know I should be more excited about stimulus checks, right? Free money, what? A check with my name on it? Oh, that is so cool. But at some point, somebody has to ask, wait, where where did this money come from? Or maybe a further question, who gets to repay this money? Bottom line is, this $1.9 trillion relief package is short on relief for struggling families. And this is, how, uh, this is how Anthony Davies and James Harrigan sum it up. They say the 2020 election and all the foolishness that came with it seem to have left the Republican Party timid. Now, this is uh, pretty typical, they say, you know, for, for at least events within the first hundred days of a new presidential administration. But it seems the GOP is taking that uh, timidity to a new level. The Republicans are offering only token resistance to President Biden's stimulus plan, and he seems more than ready to take advantage of their disarray. Biden is driving his stimulus plan, a plan that features all the worst ideas of an unshackled Democratic Party, through Congress with relative ease. And the Republican Party seems uninterested or maybe even unable to offer any kind of meaningful resistance. 
And so they ask, where are the hallmarks of the president's stimulus, or what are the hallmarks, rather, of this president's stimulus plan? He proposes a payment of $250 per child per month, which yields around $3,500 per eligible household per year. Now, for a one-child household, that's almost the same as what the earned income tax credit would yield. Now, the earned income tax credit is not a rebate, but a credit. In other words, people get it regardless of whether they paid taxes in the first place. For example, a person who owes $4,000 in federal income taxes before the earned income tax credit and receives a $3,500 earned income tax credit will end up only owing the IRS $500. Meanwhile, a person who owes $1,000 before the EITC and receives a $3,500 earned income tax credit will get a check from the IRS for $2,500. In other words, the earned income tax credit isn't designed to reduce people's taxes. It's designed to give them money. President Biden estimates that his plan, which would approximately have the same effect as doubling the earned income tax credit, will cost around one, uh, cost around $2 trillion. And on this point, they say the Republicans are derelict. If even one of them had an ounce of curiosity and access to a calculator, he'd be able to figure out that for $2 trillion, the government could cut a check to every household in the U.S. for more than $16,000. If the government would only cut checks to the poorest one-third of households, each of them would receive nearly $50,000. Only a politician could design a program to cost as much as giving every poor household $50,000 and have it actually give every poor household far less. It should be clear this sort of thing is designed at least as much to empower the government as it is to provide relief to people in financial distress. Here's the, This is the great uh, line of truth here. As usual... The government looks after itself first. Now, Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan say, given that state and local governments have forced businesses to close, a government handout might be the second best option next to allowing those businesses to reopen. But the stimulus doesn't come for free. Someone has to pay that $2 trillion price tag. And so they say it's important we keep our eyes open with this level of spending. President Biden says corporations and the rich will pay. In this, he takes his place in a long line of Democratic politicians willing to spin this lie. In 2019, the richest 1% earned around $2.5 trillion and paid around 30% of that in federal taxes. That's $750 billion. Doubling the 1%'s taxes wouldn't raise even half of what Biden's stimulus will cost. And as much as people like to talk about the rich paying their fair share... No reasonable person believes that politicians stand a chance of coming close to doubling the 1%'s taxes. First, too many politicians belong to the 1% themselves. Second, more than 35% of federal income tax revenues come from the 1% already. Trying to squeeze more out of them sends a strong signal to budding entrepreneurs to think twice before laying their lives on the line in pursuit of new ideas, new products, and new businesses. Better to flee to the safety of working for someone else Imagine what our lockdown would have looked like if Jeff Bezos had decided to do that. There goes Amazon. And raising taxes on corporations is really a bait and switch that politicians trot out often. Why? Because they know that voters won't pay attention nearly enough to see how they're being lied to. See, the fact is, corporations don't pay taxes and never have. Corporations collect taxes, and when politicians raise taxes on corporations, the corporations turn right around and either raise customers' prices, cut workers' compensations, reduce investors' returns, or do some combination of all three. 
There is no other way to pay for the increased taxes. So, who ultimately pays? Customers, workers, and investors, including virtually all workers with pensions or IRAs. Voters don't pay close attention, and politicians know it. So the American people buy the rhetoric and play their part in the show, chanting, tax the rich, never realizing they're really calling for higher taxes on themselves. Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan conclude this by saying the past four years were likely as much of a nightmare for mainstream Republicans as they were for Democrats. But they say it's time for Republicans to shake it off and get to the business of of offering viable alternatives. Until it was their time at bat, the GOP was all about fiscal prudence. If it takes them being out of office to take up the charge against deficit spending, then they say perhaps we'd all be better off if they remained out of office. But regardless of who wins and who loses the next election or the one after that or the one after that, someone will have to wake up and deal with our massive spending problem. This is really, really solid advice. I'll have a link to this in the show notes, which you can check out at thebrianhydeshow.com. Oh, my goodness. It's a massive spending problem. It's not a revenue shortage. Well, for some reason, we're just not getting enough revenue. The problem is Congress is, is spending and has been used to spending money that it doesn't really have. And they argue over things like this. And if someone says, well, maybe we should trim back the amount of uh, this deficit spending that we're doing. We should only spend, uh, you know, 3% instead of the 5%. Oh, that's terrible cuts. They're trying to throw people out in the street and make them eat dog food. Yeah, the theatrics never end. But the bottom line is, these are people who are representing us. Where's the accountability? Honestly, I, I'm not a I'm not an optimist as far as... Uh, uh, politicians getting the memo and deciding, you know, we should probably trim this back or we should be a little more responsible. My perception is they're going to keep spending until someone else, and I don't know who it is, you know, who, who keeps buying up and monetizing, you know, uh, the, the debt. Who's, who's backing all of this money that they're borrowing here? Somebody's going to say no at some point. The spigot is going to be turned off. And it's going to be painful, and I think for everybody. So... Get your own house in order. Brace yourself. (laughs) It ain't going to go on forever. This is The Brian Hyde Show.